Talk Live. Welcome to Liberty Conspiracy on Free Talk Live. All right. So let's get into some of the major stories. What's going to be the first one? Well, for that, we get to turn back to England, not necessarily to the king, but we can just take a couple letters off of that, uh, one letter off of that, and add two more, and we turn it into a state of confusion coming out of California from the kinks. I like this video as as uh, Ray Davies plays his guitar, supposedly mouths to the song, but of course drops the guitar. It's just, it's pretty funny. It's a great little video. State of Confusion. And uh, boy, what a terrific band. Uh, sort of um, very much uh, along the lines of people who are Anglophiles still still loving the kinks and wishing that the Davies brothers would get back together again. They were the forerunners of the Oasis brothers, right? Well, here's the story out of California, and Red State covers this fairly well. I got to discuss this last night on, on uh, my Liberty Conspiracy program. Of course, streaming Monday through Friday, starting at 6 o'clock Eastern Time. Check it out, everybody. Yeah, we're brought to you by Lockheed Martin. Lockheed Martin, dropping bombs of truth all the time. <laughs> and also brought to you by Nikki Haley, who's on the board of Lockheed Martin now. Hey, who's making Nikki rich? That's right. We more warmongers are making Nikki rich. Awesome. So here's the story out of California from Red State. I want to let Ward Clark open things up. Ward Clark and whoever the editor was, they tell us this. California to find stores without gender-neutral toy sections. So stores that don't create, according to the dictates of the politicians, what the politicians want to make them do in their stores will be fined. Which, as I mentioned on my program last night, that's called uh, fascism. Yes, that's fascism. It is the mixing of business, corporate interests, and government. Sometimes government plays favorites with those corporations. The corporations give the feedback loop of helping the government and and, and institute their policies through the the so-called marketplace, which is no longer a marketplace. Or the government will punish those businesses, fine them, so-called regulate them. Isn't that a wonderful euphemism? Uh, If only the mafia could use those terms. Hey, uh, boss, I went over uh, the other day and... uh, I went down to uh, Parcheesi's uh, cheese shop. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I told him, I said, uh, I said, hey, hey, uh, you don't do what we're going to what we want you to do. We're going to threaten you. Oh, uh, listen, Vinny, Vinny, kid, I know you're new here. Yeah, boss. I I did what you said. No, no, not quite. Not quite. We're adopting a new way of doing things. A new way. That's right. It's like that band of horrors sang about the new way. Well, what's the new way, boss? The new way is something you might have seen in, oh, I don't know, Nazi Germany. It's National Socialism. National Socialism? Yeah, it's sort of like this fascist combination of, like, you know, the government just dominates everything. In this case, we're going to go to Italy and talk about Mussolini. His idea of getting the government involved with everything had to do with what he called fascism. 
It was the old Roman fasces. When you combine them, they're stronger. Of course, the thing combining them is the central authority with its central plans, which is always really dumb. But for us, it's okay, because we're the mob. Hey, boss, uh, that's pretty good. Yeah, that's right, Vinny. So here's the deal. We're no longer using terms like point guns at you, threaten you, manhandle you, rob from you. No, no, no. We got terms that they use in government. Uh, These are the sorts of things that Edward Bernays would have written about in his book, Propaganda. Oh, you know, you sound a little bit like Anthony Fauci. Senator Paul, I resent your implication. What? Oh, sorry, sorry. I just uh, I just bounced away to the Senate there for a minute when I was testifying and lying through my teeth. But anyway, uh, yeah, so we here in the mafia are using new terms like, oh, you know, regulate. Regulate. That's right. It's the same thing as tell somebody to do what you want them to do or you're going to break them down and shut them down. But it sounds nicer. Edward Bernays, you know? Bernays, is that like a sauce that you get on a sandwich or something? Bernays sauce? Well, it's a sauce of a sort. It's a horse of a different color. Oh, that's great, boss. Yeah, let's see how this regulation stuff is doing in California. Ah, I hear California's doing really great, boss. Yeah, for the mafia it is. All right, here we go. That's your little excursion. Here's the story from Red State. It seems like scarcely a day goes by without news of more California lunacy. Now it's toys. No more toys, as the Burgermeister Meisterburger would say. And if he was rainbow, he'd say, toys for gender neutral. I command it. Now it's toys, writes Red State. The government of the state of California, having solved every other problem vexing the people of that state, is set now to fine, read that, punish, good job, Mr. Ward, good job, Red State, I dig what you're going with, I do have some quibbles, though, so-called regulate stores that eschew carrying woke, gender-neutral toys. So, what I think is pretty darn funny here, okay, is that for many of the youngest kids, they're not even, they can't even tell the difference. It's the parents, right? They're like, yeah, the kids will be attracted to what they want. They're not going to be reading labels. And I don't know about you, but I could always tell the difference between the boys' section and the girls' section. I didn't go to the girls' section. I'm going to walk through the girls' section to get my Planet of the Apes action figures in the boys' section next to the Tonka trucks. But here's the story originally from Fox News. Red State quotes, California stores with more than 500 employees. And by the way, I covered this when this first passed. I wrote about this for MRC TV. So when I saw this, the alarm bells came to me and they said, hey, buddy, remember this one? And I thought, oh, yeah, it's coming January 1st. I wrote about it. Thank you, MRC TV team. And I didn't even mention everybody. You can find my work for MRC TV at MRCTV.org. Check out what the whole team does there. It's the Media Research Center in their 37th year of battling left-wing bias in the pop media. California stores, writes Fox News, with more than 500 employees, will soon be fined for not having a gender-neutral toy section once a new state law kicks in January 1st. The bill, 
signed in 2021 by Democrat Governor Gavin Newsom. I wonder if he did that at that bistro, the French Laundry, while he shut down everybody and hung out with people instead for his birthday when he shouldn't have, according to his own diktats. You know, the mafia. What's what's good for them is not good for you. Gavin Newsom will force stores that sell childcare items or toys to pay a $500 fine should the store fail to create a so-called gender-neutral toy section for kids 12 years old and under. What they ought to do is, like, put a bunch of, like, really ugly things there, like nasty stuff, like old toilet paper rolls, you know, like just the, the cardboard rolls and stuff like that. Just let, you know, like, ah, here's just a second. See if anybody buys it. Oh, they're gender-neutral. Here you go. A child care item, according to the legislation text, literally the government is talking about what is a child care item. That is how far it has come. And I'll get into the major facet for me, and I'll discuss, of course, what might be the major facet to other people. Uh, I'm not sure. Um, both of them are very vexing. But uh, one of them, I think, gives us a long-term lesson constitutionally, functionally, the other gives us a long-term lesson when it comes to things like uh, um, the Frankfurt School and cultural Marxism, the long-term march of the Fabian socialists. A child care item, according to the wonderful people in Sacramento, the state capital of California, is any product designed or intended by the manufacturer to facilitate sleep, relaxation, or the feeding of children, or to help children with sucking or teething. Traditional boys and girls sections won't be outlawed. Well, isn't that magnanimous of them? How sweet! They won't be banned by the government, but a gender-neutral section must also be created. So, you politicians in Sacramento following that wonderful example of the San Francisco assemblyman, Scott Weiner, the guy, as I mentioned, let's go into the Fabian socialist mess up the family aspect of this. First, Scott Weiner was behind this bill as well as many others. He also is one of the people who from San Francisco, you've seen him marching around in the rainbow parades and stuff like that. He also helped get passed just a few months ago, which is in that direction, just a few months ago in California, maybe that direction for you. Uh, he also got passed two statutes. One is a statute that allows any child who is in a family that is getting some sort of state or federal medical care help, like Medicaid, to, to, uh, run away from the family, to leave the family and join a state house somewhere, some state-run uh, agency for kids, and ask to be put up by that state agency, ask to be separated from the parents, ask for his so-called liberation from the parents, even if the kid is underage. The parents can't do anything, and even before the child might be so-called liberated, the child can get hooked up with a state-provided psychiatrist, psychologist, who will then provide the opportunity for the child to start getting body mutilation, to 
then address the child's gender identity problem, as they say, to give that child so-called gender identity care while the parents are fighting to get the child back. That's what Scott Weiner is like. Okay. He also was behind a bill that they passed in California that makes California a so-called sanctuary state for outside runaways coming from other states in the union who run to California. They are now saying they don't have to extradite or return that runaway underage kids if they've come to California for reasons of gender identity. Seriously, that is Scott Weiner. Those are the mindsets of the people now telling other people who risk their money, risk their time, risk their opportunities to do other things to open up toy stores. Whether it's big corporations or small one-man, one-lady shops, whatever it might be, right? And now they're telling them not only we are categorizing the stuff you're selling, we're going to tell you how to sell the stuff. But of course, on many different gradations, this is what government on every level does, whether it's licensing, which is massively, massively unethical to say, well, you know, you can't participate in the peaceful activity of offering something to someone else who can take it or leave it and competing against others to lower price, increase quality and longevity of your product or service. You can't do that unless you get our government permission, because somehow when we get elected, we think we magically represent, as Rousseau might have said, the will, the general will, and we're somehow infallible. Meanwhile, Rousseau did not want what he called the will of all, which was actually individuals, you, determining what you found valuable and laying down your money for that so that you could actually expose what you found valuable. Other people could see it and they could respond to it in that way. The free market. And then you get people competing, saying, wow, there's some profit over there. I'll shift my behavior and start doing that because it seems like people like that more. So you're servicing, as Adam Smith said, through the invisible hand to help yourself, you're actually servicing other people and their needs because they're showing their needs in the interaction. They can't have that in California toy stores. They can't have that in so many aspects of our lives. They can't label things on a national level the way we want to. Meanwhile, the FDA is working with giant pharma corporations to hide information. Meanwhile, the government officials appointed by Donald Trump and others like Joe Biden later on are hiding information and lying to us explicitly while other branches of the government are working to suppress our information and silence us using our own money. If you don't uh if you're not familiar with my work over at MRC TV, David Knight has mentioned this, I've mentioned this on my program. We are almost always, at least once a month, assailed by NewsGuard. NewsGuard, a combination creation many years ago by people at Microsoft and others, funded, we discovered, thanks to the Twitter files exposure, funded by money that came from something called the Portman Murphy Countering Foreign Propaganda Act, which was floated around in 2016 as they tried to gin up this fear of Russia, it was put into the 2016 National Defense Authorization Act because, of course, everything has to get thrown in there. You just got to throw it in like, you know, some stew. It's m m mostly poison. And Barack Obama signed it. It gave 
$75 million per year for two years to media outlets that the government at the DOD determined were fighting the foreign propaganda. Some of that money went to NewsGuard. I have spent hours responding to NewsGuard's, I won't call them entreaties, I'll call them missives, notes of annoyance, to tell us that they're going to downgrade MRC-TV on their list of websites where people might want to go to advertise. And they have massive sway because they're carried on many Microsoft uh, search engines and stuff on, uh, what is it, uh, um, uh, Bing or whatever, that sort of thing. So they get suppressed, right? If you're using Edge browser, right, you have an option, I think, if you want to use that. Uh, so NewsGuard is big. And they would hurt MRC TV. And the, the, the only problems with the stories for them, they just didn't take the time to click my hyperlinks and actually see where I cited the information because I don't want to embarrass myself putting out stories that I can't support. Duh. It's amazing. You know, it's like, hey, if you want longevity in something and you want to deal honestly with people, maybe the honest thing might be the first thing on your mind. You might want to give people information and they can compare and refer. And then that will give you the longevity, just like any product. So these people don't want to open their own shops in California. They don't want to compete. Maybe there is a market for this. No, instead, they're promoting this cultural Marxism, find a new David all the time, and you will be the supposed protector of the little guy. And there's always going to be a, a new minority, a new victim. As I said, anybody who tuned in to any of those awful, just insufferable Oprah, Oprah Winfrey shows, almost every day they were celebrating how they overcame their victimhood while actually promoting the idea that they were victims and getting more people to think, oh, maybe I'm a victim. It was the culture of victimology writ large. It was absolutely vile. And that's part of the way that she made her money, appealing to people who say, oh, yes, I, too, am a victim. And then that leads into politics because the cultural Marxists take advantage of that. And they always say, just like Marx tried to say he was fighting for the working guy, working guy. Meanwhile, he was getting his money from Engels's father's textile plant while he was writing, saying that the Industrial Revolution and plants like that were evil. That's where he was getting his money to write the Communist Manifesto. Unbelievable. It's just the hypocrisy is amazing. So these people don't want to be peaceful. They want to do this. Now, let's go to the constitutional side of things. Just very quickly, if I'm in a lecture hall, I always try to bring up this very important functional side of things. And this California story is a great leap point to offer information about all these things, whether it be about licensing and the economic moral problem. If you are in a state and they're licensing, let's say they wanted to license interior designers, seriously, they wanted to license interior designers. What that does is it gives the interior designers who already have businesses and larger margins the ability to be able to pay the fees and exclude lower price competition. That then harms poorer people. Poorer people can't get the service now. Previously, if there weren't licensing, if there weren't all these regulations, they might not be able to get the top-notch service from the person who's been there the longest and can charge the most and has the greatest skills, but they might have been able to get something, hairstylists, barbers, whatever. And it's not up to the state to protect you from your own decisions. 
first of all, that's incredibly arrogant. And second of all, the arrogance also applies to any concept of the state. This is why I am a voluntarist. I'm an agorist or some I call a Christian anarchist. I believe that there should be anarchy, no ruler. And if you're going to have something like that, then don't fall for the canard of so-called self-government that they call that, they, that they use when they say that you're living in a place of an experiment of self-governance. Because self-governance is you governing yourself, not falling prey to the diktats of the tyranny of the majority, even if it's siphoned through a so-called representative democ- democratic republic and a constitution. Because as we've seen, the constitution hasn't really protected many people. It's protected some. It's fallen flat often, I'll say it that way. And also, the politicians swear oaths to it, and they really don't seem to care, do they? In addition to that, if we look at it technically, logically, abductive logic, if we look at the empirical and we look at the, uh, the inductive and deductive logic and combine them, we can see that the Constitution was something I never signed and you never signed. And the people who signed the Constitution and adopted it, they can't do that for us. We never gave them our acquiescence and permission to do something on our behalf. And if we did, mathematically, it would be impossible because representation through a political system is impossible because the polis only operates through force. That is the difference between a government and a private business institution. If everything were voluntary, it wouldn't be a state because you would have chosen to hire somebody to do what you want. So this idea of so-called protection against, oh, unlicensed hairstylists, anything like that, In order to even engage in something that some people think, well, there might be a risk. Maybe you might clip an ear and, you know, cause blood, something like that. Again, even if you think that that is something that should be policed by the state, in order for you to get that police action to go in and inspect that person and tell them now you must do this, you must do that, you must do this, you must do that. Rather than letting the market decide and if these people are bad, they will go fallow and have to do something else like everything else. Like a talk show, if you don't like it, you'll go someplace else. If you like it, you'll promote it. You'll, you'll say, hey, I, I heard something I enjoy, right? I like the personality of this person. I like the audience, that sort of thing. Well, just like that, instead, government engages in not just forcing that person to do what he says, to do what the government says, the politicians, but it also now forces somebody else who's not even part of it, might not be even interested in going to a barber like me, I don't have to go to barbers, to have to now pay for the policing of that. We'll return with more Liberty Conspiracy on Free Talk Live. Thanks so much for listening. This hour of Free Talk Live is brought to you by Dash Digital Cash. Dash is the cryptocurrency designed to be used for spending. Tired of the ever-inflating U.S. dollar? You can live your life on Dash instead with some handy websites. BitRefill.com has been accepting Dash for years and has a ton of big-name retailers and brands including grocers, gas stations, phone refills, Amazon, and even prepaid MasterCards. Plus, many of their gift cards are available at a discount. But what about paying your bills? Spritz.finance can do that, and they can send dollars to your bank account in case you still need those for some reason. Dash is one of the oldest cryptocurrencies and is widely available on exchanges, including the decentralized Maya protocol and in multi-crypto wallets. It's easy to get and use Dash. Start by learning more at Dash.org. Thanks to the Dash DAO for sending us 32 Dash per month to promote Dash on the air. Visit Dash.org to learn about Dash. Dash.org. 
Free Talk Live. We return with Liberty Conspiracy on Free Talk Live. Find Liberty Conspiracy every Monday through Friday starting at 6 p.m. Eastern Time on Rumble and Rockman and my Twitter feed at Guard Goldsmith. That's G-A-R-D Goldsmith. You can also find my Substack. It's Gardner Goldsmith, G-A-R-D-N-E-R. Just look it up under Substack. And every Sunday, you can receive the Sunday News Assembly with 20 stories I put together that might have a bearing on your liberty, plus contextual information to carry out of those stories long-term lessons for freedom. Let's continue with Liberty Conspiracy on Free Talk Live. This story from Red State exposes a very important point. This this supposedly applies to stores with more than 500 employees, right? And I remember that one. So it's not just the single person. I remember when I wrote that. That's right. So if you look at the U.S. Constitution, there is a great lesson that can be drawn from this. To round off this simple story from California, which is not so simple. It's an impediment. It's an imposition. And it's immoral. We'll talk about morality in Gaza and Douglas Murray in just a minute. But the Constitution has within it what is called the contract clause. And if you look at the lockdowns that were imposed by state legislatures and governors, thanks to Donald Trump's ridiculous, completely unconstitutional, so-called executive order of an emergency on March 13th, 2020, for uh, something that was labeled a pandemic, which was not a pandemic, the uh, case rates were heightened because of faulty PCR tests that they ginned up to many, many cycles and would have found a positive for anything that they were looking for. Um, the the um, the death rate was ginned up because the federal government, as Deborah Burks admitted at the White House in April of 2020, they were literally paying. And USA Today confirmed this. I have it hyperlinked. News NewsGuard. It's hyperlinked in many of my articles. Uh, so you can find it. Uh, USA Today said, yes, they do incentivize to the tune in some cases of $30,000 per patient if the hospital puts them on ventilators and, of course, lists a death as death from COVID, not just with a faulty PCR test, possibly. So any numbers that people are looking at regarding the death numbers in any nation state are unreliable. No one will ever know how many people died from the Cowabunga virus, right? And even the virus was not actually identified based on Koch's postulates. It was put together based on computer algorithms in a lab. That's how they identified it, with substrates. So with all those problems, let's just think about this. The lockdowns, telling people you are essential, you are not essential, we're going to stop you from engaging in your business. The United States Constitution, and again, I'm an anarchist. I think the Constitution, if they could get closer to the Constitution, that would be great. Decentralization would be great. Fewer command and control from central authority ideas harm fewer people if there are mistakes, and they're easier to escape if you've got a decentralized system. F.A. Hayek talked about this a great deal. The information problem is inherent in all centralized systems. So if you've got dispersed information, let the people that are closer to the information make the decisions with it. And it's not even my choice to let them. They have the freedom and the right to be able to do that. That's the point. You don't impose your will on others. That's the simple moral predicate. But the contract clause of the federal constitution, 
And I would rather have the Articles of Confederation or even perhaps a monarchy because then I would know who my enemy was. Uh, but or no government, my preference. Uh, that, that would be my, my, fun, my, my great choice, like the Brehon Law System in Ireland. But the Constitution has what's called the Contract Clause, which prohibits any state legislature or governor from imposing, basically any state government, from imposing, uh, from breaching the fulfillment of a pre-agreed to private uh, private contract. So if there is a business agreement, say you are supposed to deliver your pizzas someplace for a pizza party on Saturday, you've got a contract, you've got employees, you've got agreements with the employees where they don't have to wear masks. It was never part of the agreement. They don't have to not come in and work from home. That was not part of the agreement. Those those impositions from any state would be contrary to the contract clause, just like this one is. Just like this one. That's the state of confusion. Very, very, very sad. Now let's talk a little bit about economics. Because as these people impose their impositions, it's getting harder and harder and harder to do business. Thanks to, of course, not just Joe Biden, but also Donald Trump with his $2 trillion CARES Act in 2020. The PPP, giving money to all sorts of people. I wrote a piece about this for MRC TV. Yes, not just theaters and uh, Jared Kushner, friends of Jared Kushner, that sort of thing, uh, but also bands like the Smashing Pumpkins and uh, I, I believe Nickelback because they couldn't go on tour. Okay, so the government imposes these impositions to go, say, into Canada, to go into Mexico. you got to be jabbed. The Canadians do this. To come into the United States, they do this for truckers. They shut down the supply lines, making prices skyrocket, even as they're increasing the money supply by trillions of dollars and decreasing the buying power of every unit of money that is out there. The inflation of the money supply is inflation. The price increases are what the journalists typically call inflation. That's not the inflation. That's You might call it price inflation. But that's resultant of the inflation, which causes many, many errant uh, investments, malinvestment. It causes people to take risks that they normally wouldn't take to expect that their business is going to be booming in the future. So they invest in new things like R&D, new employees. And then as people on the consumer side start to see their prices skyrocket, they pull back their spending. And the people who now invested in all this stuff have it sitting fallow. So they've got to liquidate it, eh? As they said at the end of The Wizard of Oz, you liquidated her, eh? Very resourceful. Those resources have to be brought down in price to a price that more closely reflects the resources. We're going through the process now as jobs are being cut all over the place, including, as I mentioned, for MRC TV, the toy, the, the second largest toy maker in the world, Hasbro. Hasbro just cut 1,100 workers. GM got rid of half of its Buick dealerships recently. 50% of its Buick dealerships because the Buick dealerships protested being forced to have to take EVs, which of course are subsidized by the federal government. Let's talk about money right now, my friends, and turn to our friends, the fake band. You know them, you gotta love them. Oh. 
stop wasting my time You know what I want You know what I need Oh, maybe you don't Do I have to come right flat out And tell you everything Give me some money Give me some money Oh, can't beat it I'm nobody's fool. I'm nobody's clown. Or does the government think that we are fools and clowns? Well, let's let's take the positive side. Let's go the high road and turn their political frowns upside down, everyone. Well, we got to give you some bad news first. So let's get to the national debt. This comes from just the news. And here is their report. The national debt has jumped more than $6 trillion from Biden's first term compared to slightly over $3 trillion during the same time frame of Trump's term. Now, some people might think that, oh, well, this shows us that Trump is so much better. No, it doesn't necessarily show you that because Trump helped put everybody on this, this railroad track and set the locomotive going. The U.S. national debt has increased twice as fast under President Joe Biden as of December 2023 compared to former President Donald Trump, according to data released by the Congressional Budget Office, the CBO. The national debt has grown by more than $6 trillion during Biden's first term, compared to slightly over $3 trillion, sorry, I should be like Dr. Evil, trillion dollars during the same time frame during Trump's term in office. Biden took office on January 20th, 2021. Oh, and what a day that was, wasn't it? When the national debt stood at $27.7 trillion. Today, the national total debt is close to $34 trillion. And by the way, they are accruing almost a trillion dollars in debt servicing. That's interest on the debt every quarter now. Ah, that's awesome. What keeps growing? Government and debt. It's nothing like the land of the free and that self-government, huh? You're born into debt slavery. Hello, freedom child. Okay, it's like freedom fries. Just rename it. It makes it completely different. Today, the total national debt is close to $34 trillion. Oh, man. Okay. The CBO projected that the deficit would average $2 trillion for fiscal year 2024. That's the deficit, bringing the national debt to $36 trillion on October 1st, 2024, which is the end of the U.S. government's 2024 fiscal year. If it makes it that long, I probably will. Former President Donald, I've got the best debt. Donald Trump took office on January 20th, 2017, when the national debt stood at $19.9 trillion. At the end of December 2019, the national debt grew to slightly over $23 trillion. So just to give you from some perspective, those numbers, of course, are big, massive numbers. The total national debt close to $34 trillion. When Biden took office, it stood at $27.7 trillion. Okay, I think we, we all pretty much get, yeah, it's growing, it's growing big time. What about the face of this? Well, let me give you one example here as I uh, go into my Twitter feed. This comes from Fox News. I saw this last night, and I thought I would offer this to you because um, it gives you a face. It gives you an idea of what some people are facing. 
the face of a person who's facing possibly no longer being able to do what she wanted to do for and has been doing for 30 some years. So let me give this to you from Fox News. It's about a woman who's a baker in Minnesota. So let's check it out. From Fox, here's the story. Baker, supposed to celebrate its 30th anniversary this week, but instead it is closing its doors over the rising cost of doing business. And the owner is now pleading for donations to keep her bakery afloat. Tammy Cabrera is the owner of Muddy Paws Cheesecake, and she joins me now. Tammy, I'm sorry this is happening to you. What was the final straw for you? Um, well, good morning. Um, it, it was a combination of the last two years of the ingredient prices rising and supplies like boxes, deliveries, things like that. And um, that combined with debt coming into the last two years, it came to a point where I just couldn't straddle both the debt and the high ingredient prices. So those of us in the bakery world, we work on really small margins as it is. And then when you add um, prices that raise that rise really quickly or greatly, it's hard to uh, it's hard to do business. Let's look at some numbers. Prices for key baking ingredients like eggs, milk, sugar, flour and butter have all increased at least 15 percent since December of 2020. In your 30 years in business, Tammy, have you ever seen price hikes like this on your ingredients? I have not. Hmm. Well, let's just put my face on there rather than the Tyson commercial. They're two to five times higher than what they've ever been. Price hikes like this on your ingredients? I have not. They're They're two to five times higher than what they've ever been for us. And the simple answer might be to raise your prices, but you can only raise your prices so much for you lose customers or you're not competitive. So you get stuck in that, that middle part. And when you have debt, like we do going into that, we, um, we just can't move forward without help. Yeah. I mean, how much of that increase to your point, can you ultimately pass on to the customers? Is it 5%? Is it 10%? Like what number can you do without driving those customers away, Tammy? Yeah, it's, I would I would say like five percent is probably the greatest I can go. Um, our customers are also our friends. Like when you're in business for thirty years, you're part of people's weddings and birthdays and stories, and you get to know them. And they come in and they, and they come in every every celebration, and we get to know them. So I I want to be uh, walking that fine line of making it where they can still get cheesecake but then also that we can stay in business. You are just one of many small businesses struggling. Does it feel like the system just doesn't support small businesses right now? And if so, why? Like, who do you blame? Yeah, I, I believe it's my, um, you know, not just bakeries or food providers, but other small businesses are facing high prices in all different ways. Um, I don't know exactly where the blame falls, but uh, I do feel like we fall through the cracks and in, in receiving help, you know, and um, it'd be nice if, if cities would help in lots of ways, like maybe advertising and, um, and I don't, I'm not really sure of all the ways they can help, but there's, I do feel like there's, there's room for that. So there's unfortunately a bit of a problem. See, that's the thing as, uh, as Harry Brown used to say, government is good at doing two things. I think it's three. He said, breaking your legs and then providing crutches for you and saying, see, if it weren't for me, you wouldn't be able to walk around. Uh, That's really three things. And I think there's another one, which is 
expecting you to be grateful. So she's, she's, a, well, can't the government help? No, no, that's, that's not, that's not the right idea. Because in trying to help this woman, what would the government be doing? They'd be using money from other people, right? Future generations, probably if there's debt. So what she's doing here is saying, I'm being harmed by government. Then they're saying, well, couldn't there be an answer? The answer is get government out of it, right? Let's take an opportunity to talk a little bit about the minimum wage. There's a very interesting story from Fast Company that shows us just how much people seem to love fascism by dictating how much someone's work is worth to a consumer. And there's a lesson in this for economics that is very important. A lot of people think that the employer is the boss. The consumer is the boss. The consumer actually is the employer. The consumer is the one who employs the typically seen, traditionally seen employer and that employer's employee staff. And we're all free to decide. We should be what we want to buy, what we want or don't want to buy. If we don't want to help this woman with her advertising, we shouldn't be forced to do so. That just compiles more immorality on the already larger problem of getting things to her. The supply chain, as I mentioned, becoming more expensive. Minimum wage increases for 2024. Is this in your state, my friends? Starting January 1st, some workers in 22 states will see a raise next week. On January 1st, I see. And then what will happen? Are their jobs really worth it? What will the consumer do? As she says, there are certain things that the consumers just won't buy. They'll either find alternatives or they just will do without. In total, an estimated 9.9 million workers will see additional wages thanks to the increased rate equating to $6.95 billion in wages, according to an analysis from the Economic Policy Institute. Now, some people would say, oh, that's great. People making $6.95 billion more, right? But I'm sure you know, and you could tell this to a class sometime, and get up in front of the class and teach, that $6.95 billion that is being redirected from other options. As Frederick Bastia said, it is the broken window fallacy, what is seen and what is not seen, opportunity cost, the term in economics, of course, where you're now having an opportunity to spend your money that you could have saved by buying something for less on something else. You can't spend it on something else. You can't employ that other person now. And if it's going to go up why go up by this much? Why not go up even more? Why not make it $60 billion more in wages? Why won't that be helpful? Isn't that going to be better? Perhaps it's because it makes labor too expensive. That's a major factor in the production process. All your factors of manufacturing have to be considered, which is one of the reasons why, just like ancient cavemen used to use tools without even designing them, but just sort of figuring out that a lever might help one guy push something or lever it away, or an inclined plane, 
inclined plane will let one guy lift something up that used to take two guys because now it's covering more distance rather than going perpendicularly up. You're going at an angle. So there's more distance, but a smaller unit of uh, smaller units of force inside each measure of distance. So it's easier for one man to do it. You've now freed up somebody. Some people would say, oh, that means that the second guy is unemployed. The second guy is free to be more productive. That's the point. We don't want to work harder for what we want to get. We want to work less for what we want to get. And that's something that even ancient people did. As I said, they didn't burden themselves by having pregnant women go on the hunt. They had division of labor even in caveman days. Old guys weren't out there on the hunt. They were back in the cave skinning. And as they did what they did best, they had division of labor. They could then do early bartering. Bartering becomes difficult when you have third parties, fourth parties, and so on. You have to keep going around trying to figure out who wants what and who might take what. So you have to go to extra parties. So people often find something that is commonly valued by many people. They start to recognize, well, you know what? Most people like this, and they will trade to get stores of that and then use that as their unit of currency, which is the creation of money. It's not, it doesn't, it's not dictated to us by kings, right? So here we've got the idea that first the government or the government granted monopoly can issue the money. And of course, in order to let the government keep playing favorites with people to pander to them, like giving money to Solyndra and uh, Proterra, the uh, the EV battery manufacturer that was so loved by Jennifer Granholm when she was governor of Michigan, all those pandering things, airports, highway funds, school funds, Medicare, Medicaid funds, whatever interest group it might be, right? Or even the funds to police toy stores now in California, those funds have got to be generated somehow. And people will resist if they're taxed beyond a certain point. So states engage in borrowing. They float bonds and someone's got to buy them. Well, that typically is the Federal Reserve or branches of the government themselves. Strangely enough, they'll do that. So the Federal Reserve creates new money and buys the bonds. When those bonds have to be paid off, the feds have to issue new bonds to pay off the old bonds, and the Fed will buy the new bonds. So it's a giant Ponzi scheme. It's a giant shell game, you might say. And it all is part of doing this sort of thing. In this case, we see the fascism mandating that the businesses extract $6.95 billion from consumers if consumers are willing to pay it. Maybe they won't. And it's just a terrible thing that's being done to so many potential employees because people on the low end won't have skills that will match what the consumers are willing to pay. So they'll either lose their jobs or they'll never be hired. Those opportunities now are lost. As Frederick Bastier said in his Broken Window Fallacy essay, the parable of the broken window, when a politician was saying, well, look, that broken window, that's actually a benefit. That storm broke that window, but that'll give work to the glazier. Isn't that fantastic? Basia said, all you're doing is redirecting the flow of that usable capital from where the person who earned it might have wanted to spend it to better his life. Now he's going to spend it just to repair the window, just to remain where he was before. He's not progressing. He's not increasing his living standard. He's just maintaining. And you're losing sight of the person who could have received that in that new business. That's what government does. It is, by its nature, breaking your windows. And that's axiomatic. You can't escape that. 
And so these decisions should be made based on productivity and whether the employees are providing something to consumers. And they always demonize the employer. Should, should the consumer be demonized? Should people be going out and protesting and saying, we want the consumers to pay more? How dare you be money-grubbing consumers trying to save? Well, that's all the employer is trying to do is trying to provide the best product to people. And if he can't provide a good wage to the employees, there'll be another business that'll crop up, especially if consumers have extra money left over to spend on another business. Eleutheromania, the insatiable desire for freedom. It's the new three-song heavy metal EP from Captain Kickass. Available now on your favorite music app or get it directly from CaptainKickass.com. We return with Liberty Conspiracy on Free Talk Live. I'm Gardner Goldsmith. Thanks so much for joining us. You can follow me on Twitter slash X at Gard, G-A-R-D, Goldsmith, G-O-L-D-S-M-I-T-H. Let's see what's happening in another country right now as we look at economics a little bit more. Let's see what happens when you get central banks, whether it's a central government issuing the money like the Roman government. They used to call the coins in, shave silver off the coins, reissue new, reissue the old coins claiming they were worth just as much, and then use the money that they shaved off to help pay their debts as they had their giant hegemonic empire expanded all the way up into the United Kingdom. So let's talk about, I guess they never made it to Wales. They got repelled by the Welsh barbarians. Very interesting. It's a very good Edgar Rice Burroughs novel, I Am a Barbarian, uh, talking about uh, being from that area and going down and fighting in Rome. Uh, but let's talk about uh, the extension of the Roman Empire a little bit right now, central banking, and where they might be going. In a nation state just north of here, where I am in New Hampshire, what's their... <laughs> We see the rise, the true north, strong and free. Ah, uh, how about that uh, Declaration of Rights and Freedoms in Canada, huh? Yeah, Justin Trudeau really respected that. He engaged in his emergency before they even voted on it. And by the way, there's one last vestige of the uh, British government that's supposed to uh, supposed to have a final say as to whether or not they can engage in an emergency and even emergency orders under Trudeau. Even then, the emergency orders that they passed after their uh, Charter of Rights and Freedoms in Canada, it contradicts with the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. For example, uh, in Canada, you're supposed to, according to their Charter of Rights and Freedoms uh, that was uh, revised in the 80s, you're supposed to be able to travel from province to province unmolested by the government. Guess what Trudeau and some of the provincial uh, governors did? Yeah, that's right. 
And uh, central troops, just like I mentioned yesterday on the Dave and I show, and I've, I've mentioned on my show, in the U.S. Constitution, Article 4, Section 4 allows for the militia to be called up by the federal government if a state legislature or a governor has asked for the militia to come in to help preserve their so-called constitutional government uh, from invasion or violence. And Greg Abbott has done that. And now the governor of Arizona, a Democrat, has also done that. And, and Biden's not responding. In Canada, the provincial governors are supposed to be the ones who they have to ask for the federal soldiers, military to come in before those soldiers and military can come in. So it's quite interesting. It's analogous to the United States Constitution. Let's talk about what's going on in Canada as politicians in Canada creep closer to universal basic income and they get closer to CBDC. Here's Professor Pete St. Ange. Pete St. Ange has done excellent work and uh, he's been um, an advisor for the Heritage Foundation, of all things. And uh, he's probably one of their strongest free, real free market type people at Heritage. Heritage isn't bad, but I, I much prefer the Mises Institute. Heritage um, is a much more sort of uh, almost rhino sometimes now. It used to be a little bit more uh, openly towards freedom. But Pete St. Ange, great on his economics. And he's done a wonderful job on Twitter slash X expanding his profile even has an advertiser, as he talks about where Canada is going. They're creeping. It's the Canadian creep towards CBDC and universal basic income. Let's see what he has to say. Universal basic income is coming to Canada. Will the U.S. be next? I've been warning of a UBI, universal basic income, for a while now, since that is where we are in the fall of Rome sequence. (laughs) Recently, Canada's left-wing liberals proposed just such a scheme dubbed the, quote, guaranteed livable basic income. Lest one think it's just the liberals who've gone mad, Canada's Conservative Party deputy leader then spoke warmly of it, saying conservatives should, quote, own it. So in all likelihood, it's coming. First off, what is a UBI? The idea is to give everybody just enough to get by whether or not they work. A typical number might be $1,000 per month. Supporters claim people will still work, which is hilarious. More on that in a moment. And many conservatives, such as the deputy leader, have been suckered with promises that it will replace the existing welfare state, which, of course, is a lie. New welfare schemes are often sold that way, including the EITC here in the U.S., which was sold as a negative income tax that would replace welfare as we know it. But of course, that never happened. The extra trillions just went on top because it turns out that handing free money is like salting a soup. It's easy to add. It's very, very hard to take away. Beyond the bait and switch, why is a UBI so bad? Partly because the cost is raid the treasury level, so perhaps $3 trillion per year in the U.S., but mostly because it would radically expand our growing army of permanently unemployed couch-surfing parasites who do little work beyond voting for more welfare. To see why, consider two similar phenomena today, unemployment benefits and pensions. Two years ago, the New York Times put out a major time use survey, finding that while full-time workers spend five hours a day at work, unemployed people on benefits spend just 30 minutes a day looking for work. So how do they spend the other four and a half hours? Watching TV, napping, surfing the internet, playing games, and hanging out with their girlfriend. So that's a 90% drop in work. 
We've got similar numbers from retirement. Once Americans hit that magic 65 line, the Bureau of Labor Statistics tallied up the number of seniors working. That came out to 8% working full-time, 7% working part-time, which compares to 63% of the general population. So in that case, it's an 80% drop. Beyond the extortionate taxes on the few who still would work, the main victims would be the young will be bribed out of entry-level jobs, ushered into a life of quasi-poverty, doing nothing, having nothing, and complaining about it on TikTok. So what's next? Brought to you by Unchained. Vote buying has been popular since at least the Roman Empire, who put the bread in bread and circuses, and it's driven the country to ruin since at least the Roman Empire. But the political calculus is irresistible. All those millions of juicy votes. COVID was the test case in Canada and in many other countries, and the next recession, you can be sure they will push it hard here in America. As for long-suffering Canadians, it looks like it will get worse before it gets better. Okay, we'll be watching. Thank you, Pete St. Ange. And uh, the Twitterverse had some pretty good comments here, just want to mention. They, They do note that Canada is not implementing a universal basic income yet, And they just point this out. This isn't really contradictory to what Peter St. Ons just said. One senator and one MP have bills that instruct the finance minister to develop a framework report on UBI. That is correct. Neither bill mentions a specific dollar amount nor directly implements UBI. But they are getting closer. And it's extremely important to keep it in mind. Of course, because Canada is such a fantastic nation state, the government there is so awesome that let's not forget they celebrated a Waffen SS trooper. All right. That's great. That's just awesome stuff, isn't it? Oh, and they did that while also, yeah, that's right. In the house, they had Vladimir Zelensky. There he is right there hanging out because, you know, the Nazis of the Azov Battalion and the Slovoda party, like Ole Tianibak, with whom um, uh, John McCain and Lindsey Graham met uh, Joe Biden. Uh, there were pictures of him shaking hands with uh, Ole Tianibak. Um, he was mentioned in that conversation between Jeffrey Pyatt and um, uh, Victoria Nuland in that F the EU, that infamous uh, 2014 F the EU recording that was gotten from their cell phones as they were putting together the government that the the United States and NATO and the Atlantic Council wanted put in after the United States was involved with the overthrow of the Ukrainian government in 2013 in the Maidan coup. Isn't that great? That's a, what a what a just cheery all the way. You can't go wrong, boy. You you want some fun? Just go up to Canada. They'll remind you of the good old days. And yes. Uh, A lot of people don't know that Canada is still actually part of the British Empire. Uh, That's why in order to institute the emergency thing, they have to go with, I can't remember what it's called, something like the the royalty in council or or, or something like that, or the king or the queen in council. And it's a a representative from the British, British government who is part of the Canadian government and they have to get final approval from this person. It's 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 really weird. But even then, even if they get the final approval to go with emergencies, which Justin Trudeau didn't even wait. He just sent those horses out to trample people like you saw from Rebel News, you know, trampling a, a 76-year-old native, native uh, Indian-Canadian woman. 
Uh, yeah, that sort of thing. Uh, Trump uh, 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 pummeling, hitting one of the Rebel News reporters. Um, and you can see the welt on her leg later. Um, he just went and did it. He didn't even wait for the for the Canadian Parliament to approve it. Maybe that was because they were too busy, you know, thinking about making their plans to bring in Volodymyr Zelensky and uh, and a Nazi. You know, that's I, I don't know. You know, I'm just thinking about that. But, hey, you know, we have to remember he was just following orders. Right. Well, let's keep that in mind as we turn right now to a follow up to something that we got to discuss yesterday with James Bovard. And I'll mention again, just real quick, if you get the opportunity. Uh, by the way, oh, and thank you, everyone, for your really nice comments about the conversation with James Bovard on yesterday's David Knight Show. I'm Gardner Goldsmith filling in for David. And um, yesterday I had my friend, a man that used to be just one of my heroes. Now he's one of my friends. Over the past you know, 20 years or so, I've gotten to know James Bovard. A great writer for freedom. His new book is Last Rights, sort of the follow-up to Lost Rights that was published about 10 years ago as he looked at the uh, results of the Patriot Act, the growth of the FBI, uh, things like uh, so-called civil asset forfeiture, the war on drugs, which is you know incredibly immoral and unconstitutional. I've got a lot of bookmarks in here. I got to ask him a lot of good questions, I thought, uh, hopefully, and uh, thanks for your responses. Uh, you know, I wanted to try to pick sections that I thought uh, people might say, oh, wow, you know, that's really and there's even more there. But you're limited for time. So I, I thought we did a pretty good job. And and I hope you'll get that. It's uh, it's published by the Libertarian Institute. And they've also just published a new book by Tom Woods. And uh, it's called Diary of a Psychosis. And it's, of course, about the lockdown mentality, the jab mentality and all that stuff. And um, so now I want to turn to our friend Glenn Jacobs, because James and I both discussed what Glenn posted on Twitter slash X yesterday. Uh, Glenn, of course, used to live up in New Hampshire, former pro wrestler, went as the character Kane, uh, has been in this house numerous times and had to stoop through the doorway because he's so huge. And I remember one time we walked down to get pizza down at this little uh, store down in our town. And he just, he's so huge, he can't escape his own physicality. It's not just that he's a celebrity, um, but it's that, you know, his body is so big, even if he tried to hide his identity, people would be looking at him, you know? Uh, it's, it's a, it must be a weird existence. It's very strange. I guess, I guess you get used to it. You don't know anything different after a while, but um, very odd. It's, it's different. But uh, he posted this, and I'll read it to you in case uh, you're listening. Uh, he says, Burks, Deborah Burks, came to Knoxville in September of 2020. In a private meeting, she told us that bars and restaurants should be closed. She admitted the data didn't support it, but said it was necessary to send a message about the seriousness of the virus. That's marketing, not science. And of course, up in Canada, they restricted travel between the provinces. But I did not discuss, and James and I did not discuss yesterday on the program, the post that inspired Glenn to post that information about that private meeting or closed door government official meeting, because Glenn is now the mayor of Knox County in Tennessee. This came from Kevin Bass. Kevin Bass is an outspoken guy whose motto is live not by lies, the Solzhenitsyn line. He's been on Tucker Carlson's show. He's been published in Newsweek. And he's been speaking up. 
about Deborah Burks and what is in her book. Now, we've heard about these things before. So I just want to give you another, you know, little echo, little reminder to carry this information with us. And hopefully people won't forget this stuff. As Tom Woods publishes his book, Time Goes By, just like 9-11, things start to recede in the past. The wrongdoers, should they get away with this sort of stuff? How do we call them to task? How do we keep the fire going? Well, at least we can talk about it, right? At least we can keep telling the truth. Do not live, by, live not by lies. Well, Kevin Bass, and hats off to Kevin, says Deborah Burks from her memoir, explaining how, quote, two weeks to flatten the curve was just marketing for harsh months-long lockdowns that she was already planning. Quote, on Monday and Tuesday, March 9th and 10th, 2020, we worked simultaneously to develop the flatten the curve guidance I hoped to present to the vice president at week's end. Let's just pause there and mention that that was the exact wrong thing to do. Precisely wrong. And it runs, even if it were, even if it had been right, it runs counter to freedom on two levels. First, the areas where you run into conflict, where people start to argue about what the health policy policy should be, are public tax-funded areas. They combine everybody, and it causes what's called the tragedy of the commons, where everyone has different or slightly different opinions. Maybe some people might agree, but most people will disagree about exactly how that government tax-funded resource is going to be utilized or should be utilized, right? You can't reveal your preferences through the market because you're forced to pay for it. So everybody, it causes dissension and argumentation. That to me is not unity. That's being forced together in a corral. That's like putting hungry rats together in a box and seeing what happens. That's the state. They put you in the box. They wanted to put everybody in their homes. As Jay Bhattacharya, who wrote the introduction, the foreword to Tom Woods' new book, Diary of a Psychosis, also published by the Libertarian Institute. My friend Sheldon Richmond, one of the people who started it, Scott Horton uh, on the board, he also helped start it. Um, the idea of shutting things down and locking people down, putting them in their homes, the people like Jay Bhattacharya, and the Great Barrington signers, Great Barrington Declaration signers said, no, that's the wrong way to do it. You don't rely on unreliable jabs to get endemic status, some sort of what you think is herd immunity. You're not going to get herd immunity through so-called vaccinations, jabs. Because first, there's a time factor on, first, there's a question on how effective they are. And then if you are giving people a false notion of security, they're now out there and could be contagious. What did we hear? We heard, well, this is amazing. For the first time, we're actually finding that in people's noses, they have just as much of the viral material uh, after they've been jabbed. Yeah, that's because they weren't working. And we're finding for the first, first time asymptomatic spread. Oh, you mean maybe people are getting symptoms after they got jabbed because the jabs aren't working, so they're getting sick. Maybe there's also a problem with the jabs themselves. Maybe that's actually the bigger problem long term. 
And if you actually just allowed people to deal with what you say is this incredibly deadly virus, which had a 94.6% survival rate across all age quintiles combined and a near zero rate for people under 18, maybe if you had just allowed as the people at the Great Barrington Declaration had signed, the healthy people, it, maybe if you had just just said, I'm not going to mess with people, not even allowed. Maybe if you had just gotten out of it and let people decide for themselves, suggested that healthy people go out, get their natural immunity by acquiring the virus and building up their long-term cells for viral intervention, their T cells, then maybe you could then see the elderly and more frail people who were at home come out and you would have herd immunity and a lower chance of those frail people contracting the virus. Maybe that would be it. But you didn't do it that way. You said we've got to flatten the curve beforehand. You said the hospitals were going to be overrun. You lied and told people the hospitals were overrun when people were going out with cameras and finding, no, they weren't. When hospital orderlies, nurses, and doctors were doing flash dances and line dances, flash mob routines that clearly had to have been choreographed. Where'd they get the time? I thought they were dealing with all these dying patients. When, in fact, if you look at and compare the flu deaths to the so-called COVID deaths, it's almost as if COVID was a label that they put on the seasonal flu. The other problem with the vaccines is not just whether or not they're reliable, but it's the time frame in which people get the vaccines and how long the vaccines work. You have two temporal factors there. One is how long will they work to go backwards? We don't know. And of course, with these, we saw week after week, they kept saying, well, you know, it turns out as, uh, as um, the uh, former head of the CDC, Walensky told us, well, yeah, now we can't really say that they're reliable in any way that they fight anything. Of course not. And then there's the time factor of when are people getting these shots, right? So some people might get the shots and then later, are they now still immune? How about people who got it six months later? Should they be the only ones allowed out in the future once their immunity wears off? And even now, the federal government, as Russell Brand has mentioned on his show, and I mentioned it on my show on Liberty Conspiracy, they're putting out PSAs telling people that natural immunity doesn't last. That is the thing that lasts. That's the point. So we'll go back to Deborah Burks and her lies, literally admitting in her memoir, on Monday and Tuesday, March 9th and 10th of 2020, we worked simultaneously to develop the flatten the curve guidance I hope to present to the vice president at week's end, which was the exact wrong thing to do. Getting buy-in on the simple mitigation measures every American could take was just the first step leading to longer and more aggressive interventions. We had to make these palatable to the administration by avoiding the obvious appearance of a full Italian lockdown. No sooner had we convinced the Trump administration to implement our version of a two-week shutdown than I was trying to figure out how to extend it. Yes, were you telling people about that, Deborah? Fifteen days to slow the spread was a start, but I knew it would be just that. 
I didn't have the numbers in front of me yet to make the case for extending it longer, but I had two weeks to get them. Well, you weren't going to get those numbers because they weren't real. And Glenn Jacobs pointed out in the meeting that they weren't real. Hey, you are going to love the movie Victimless Crime Spree. It's hilarious, heartwarming, and carries a ton of inspiring freedom messages. Feeling down about the lack of liberty in your life? You need to put on this film with some friends and have a good laugh. It's a true story about me and my friends in New Hampshire living free, singing, dancing, and getting arrested. Of course, it's all on video, and the bad guys, the cops, judges, bailiffs, and sheriffs, they all play their part like it's out of a movie or something. You would think we scripted the whole thing, but it's real life. Go ahead and have a watch, and if it's been a while, have another look. I guarantee you'll notice things now that you didn't notice before. And the best part is that you're going to walk away feeling a renewed sense of your own power. You are the master of your destiny, and you will be free in your lifetime. Victimless Crime Spree. We return with Liberty Conspiracy on Free Talk Live. I'm Gardner Goldsmith. Thanks so much for joining us. You can follow me on Twitter slash X at Gard, G-A-R-D, Goldsmith, G-O-L-D-S-M-I-T-H. There is no such thing as public health. There's no such thing as public safety or public security. That's the state telling you that your security can be sacrificed for what they say is the good of all. That's the state telling every individual, you are always an individual. You don't blend into some gelatinous mass when you're out amongst people in this area or that area, or you're part of this demographic group or that demographic group, or whatever the politicians want to fascistly and facetiously tell you, you are part of. You are an individual. There is only individual health. And the idea that the government can then impose its will on you whether it's by taking your money or taking your opportunities or forcing you to stay inside, taking your other liberties, so-called for the protection of the public health, means that every individual who remains an individual is always a target for the government, which then undercuts the very logic of the government saying that they're working for so-called public health. Because if everyone can be a potential victim, that means that the agent of threat is actually the state, the government. That claims that for everyone, everyone can be a potential victim. That's a QED. It's a non-starter, logically. Aristotle could have talked about that. You could get this in a sixth grade logic class. But politicians don't seem to get it. They love to put that rhetoric out there. They love to promote, well, it's for the public. It's just like the Marxist, neo-Marxist, cultural Marxist idea of always finding the little guy. Because hidden behind their message is, well, if you don't agree with this, you are oppositional. You are a danger. The Karens out there in politics are going to call the cops if you're walking your dog without a mask. The little guy has to be protected. That person who's frail and invalid, they've got to be protected by force, not choice. And this is the final point that I'll make. As a free market proponent, I try to stress the importance of private property and individual choice revealing preferences. 
We don't know how much security people want when it comes to viruses unless we let them choose. And the only way that we can let them choose is to let them control their property and their interactions. So the less often you have these public places where everybody's opinions are thrown together into the tragedy of the commons, the smaller these areas of political control, the better it is. And if you can pare away even those small areas of political control, if you go to private property, then you get real individuals choosing, do I want to go into that shop? I wonder what they're like. What's their security protocol? How much information do I have on the threat? As people see other people interacting and what happens to them, they start to say, well, do I want to go into that home? What's it like? Do I want to stay in that hotel? What are the locks on the doors like? What's their, what's their cleanliness like? Do I want to eat at that restaurant? What's their reputation like? Have I been invited to a party? What's that person like? Do I go to this private school? What's their policy like? Do they protect kids? Do they have gender neutral bathrooms, right? Not imposed on everybody, but choices. Toy stores. What's the, what's in the toy store? Revealing preferences, rising and falling based on what you're offering. If you had private property rather than government run areas, then people could say, this is my viral security protocol. This is what it's like. Do you want to come in? Do you not want to come in? You can actually ask. And if you're not asking, you're not that interested. That's not my fault. I shouldn't be charged with that. That's up to you. The more often you have these voluntary areas of interaction, the more often you can see the results of people's own choices. And every time someone leaves one of those private arrangements, those private situations, they can then enter into a new one. And every time that happens, you see the manifestation of everyone's interests. Those security protocols are brought up. But with government, it's one size fits all. You can't have variation. You can't have experimentation. That's exactly what Deborah Burks was pushing. And now let's hear from Naomi Wolf. Good job, Glenn Jacobs, getting that information out. Here's Naomi Wolf, who's grown tremendously. Uh, as I mentioned, when we were talking with James Bovard yesterday, uh, James and I were both at a Free State Project uh, conference here in New Hampshire. I think it was a year after I was speaking, Glenn was speaking, Naomi Wolf and James Bovard came up. They were guests and uh, had a great conversation with both of them. And Naomi was you know, she was very, very much on the feminist issues, that sort of thing that were maybe uh, typical sort of feminist things, very much in favor of free speech and that sort of stuff. But she had not really dug down into some of the agendas of the leftists and the cloaks that they wore supposedly supporting freedom when they were actually for statism and um, and trying to portray people in a gaslight way who might oppose the growth of the state, trying to portray them as against the little guy when actually they were not in favor of the little guy, those people who promoted the state. Well, Naomi Wolf posts this. She says, stunning admission. It's a repost from Eric Hartman. She says, yeah, okay. We really weren't thinking about what would happen after we helped to load those people into those box cars. Of course, she's reminiscing, uh, bringing back uh, uh, thoughts about uh, criticism of Nazi Germany, of course. Very appropriate here. The public health mindset is very narrow, she said. That's because public health doesn't care about the individual. It only cares about the state. I want to go to this original post as we see Francis Collins 
who was caught secretly communicating with Anthony Fauci on how they would counter Jay Bhattacharya and the others from the Great Barrington Declaration, who were giving what was solid, traditional medical advice and proved to have been correct. Do the regular idea of leaving people free to associate with each other, let the healthy people do what they want, suggest that the more frail stay, stay inside until you get to a number of people who've contracted the virus, have been healthy, and now have natural immunity. Let's see what Francis Collins, this is, of course, years now after he wrote secret messages to Anthony Fauci, but we discovered them. Thank you. Let's see what Eric Hartman has to say. And here is Francis Collins. What a guy. As a guy living inside the Beltway, feeling the sense of crisis, trying to decide what to do in some situation room in the White House with people who had data that was incomplete, we weren't really thinking about what that would mean uh, to Wilk and his family uh, in Minnesota, a thousand miles away from where the virus was hitting so hard. We weren't really considering the consequences in communities that were not New York City or, or, or some other big city. The public health people, we talked about this earlier, and this is a really important point. If you're a public health person and you're trying to make a decision, you have this very narrow view of what the right decision is, and that is something that will save a life. Doesn't matter what else happens. So you attach infinite value uh, to stopping the disease and saving a life. You attach a zero value to whether this actually totally disrupts people's lives, ruins the economy, and has many kids kept out of school in a way that they never quite require. Collateral damage. So there, yeah, collateral damage. This is a public health mindset. And I think a lot of us involved in trying to make those recommendations had that mindset. And that was really unfortunate. That's another mistake. Okay. All right. As a guy. Um, That collateral damage attitude. That's going to feed into our topic for the last hour, and that is going to be Douglas Murray and the callous attitude, the term, well, it's war. I don't think you understand. Innocent people get killed in war. Um, No, actually, the traditional rules of war with a capital W, as it is written in the U.S. Constitution, are that you don't kill civilians. There isn't a term collateral damage in the traditional view of war. And yes, there were exceptions that cropped up, but that was supposedly the deal in war. The people who signed on to fight for the monarchs, people who got hired, the knights, the soldiers, they were the ones who put themselves at risk. And innocent people were supposed to be left out of it because it was state on state. People like Francis Collins represent a new kind of war criminal liars, cheaters, after the facts, excusing it. Well, it's public health. Just like I said, you can be sacrificed and they reverse it. They flip it to say, well, if we can just save one life. Well, what you're doing is you are creating a situation where people who might want to handle their own lives can't be allowed to do so. You're destroying lives. That's what you're doing. And moreover, even if his decisions were right, Even if all these decisions might have actually been the right way to go, which we knew right at the start they weren't. That's one of the reasons why 
um, why NewsGuard was going after us at MRC TV because I was publishing stuff in, at the start of the pandemic, so-called, that ran counter. So they were trying to silence us. MRC TV got uh, shut off of YouTube often, had to come back. Luckily, they have teams of lawyers working for them. And, you know, we weren't going to change our perspective on these things. So Francis Collins represents not just bad decision making, but the, the immoral idea that there can be a government decision maker. Because the only way the government decision makers get their money is by forcing people to pay for it. So all of it, all of it stems from immorality. So when we talk about Francis Collins, I'm reminded of something. I'd like to give this to you. Uh, Some folks asked me a little while ago, and this might seem a little tangential, but some folks asked me a little while ago, hey, guard, why don't you talk about your fiction stuff? I said, oh, yeah, you know, I don't do that. So there's some fiction over at Amazon. The first novella that I got published is called Bite. And um, in it, at the back of it, there's a short story. And it's called Sigil. I'd like to read this to you. Let me know what you think. What can I express about this strange phenomenon that will not inspire within you merely a subtle sense of disquiet rather than utter uncontrollable dread? To you, the tale I intend to recount will seem a trifle, the most ordinary of occurrences, dismissible as a simple twist of fate or the combination of average circumstances as seen through an old man's paranoid dementia. But to me, the witness of these preternatural events, it is a story so horrific as to implicate the devil himself. In my lonely and solitary existence here in New England, I have endeavored to trouble no one. The pale and silent snows of winter blanket my surroundings, delivering peace and tranquility to my once-tormented soul. They bring to mind the deep arboreal stillness of my homeland, where a man might walk for miles and encounter no one. His companions, mute and unmoving, would consist of the majestic firs and brooding oaks, and the crisp air would fill his lungs and caress his skin. Invigorated and enlivened, he would march with a bounce to his step, planting his boots in the snow and delighting in the crunch of one against the other. I can recall with vivid clarity the varied colors of the wood, the deep green of the pines and the pearly white of the snow, the somber browns of the shadow-filled valleys and the ghostly gray of my own breath billowing into the air. The frosted canopy had its own wonderful presence and I encountered it like a subject does his king with heartfelt and profound reverence. Many years have passed since then, the days and trying times accruing like layers of tarnish on silver. But the brilliance of those memories remains of a time when I was young and vital, standing alongside my friends in a great and noble struggle. Tragically, almost all of them are gone now, buried beneath those knee-deep snows, their pale bones turning to dust in unremarkable graves. It is all too clear that I cannot return to see them, but I do have my memories. 
Although my loneliness is sometimes profound, I can relive those halcyon days by exercising my mind and thumbing through my careworn diary. My recollections from that time are set down in some 180 pages in an almost unintelligible script, written with an uncooperative fountain pen over the course of three years. The sheets themselves are yellowing and delicate, like centuries-old vellum, and bound in a brown leather cover embossed with the glorious seal of my people. It may seem to you that all these images are rather sedate and bucolic, a cottage in the woods, the drifting snow, a cherished diary. Had I not experienced what I have, I might be inclined to agree, but such a judgment could not be further from the truth. Think me mad if you must, but it is these very underpinnings of my ordinary world that have conspired to drive me to paroxysms of fear, the sort of chill terror that is unvanquishable and unrelenting. Winter evenings here can be very cold. The air can numb one's skin, and great harm can be dealt the delicate constitution of an old man. I, therefore, wisely retire early, retreating to my familiar rocker by the fire, where I wrap myself in homespun Yankee blankets and contemplate the leaping flames. How lively they are at times, rising up as if to engulf my entire world. Their lambent orange glow is more than sufficient to illuminate the cottage, the pop and crackle, the only sounds in the haunting night. On my lap rests my diary, a tiny looking glass to days gone by. As I scan the pages and remember, a curious sensation of warmth or spreads my aged form, bringing with it contentedness and lethargy. The scribbled words speak clearly to me from long ago, telling those familiar stories I hold so dear, and I cannot help but feel a pang of emotion upon reading them. Occasionally, I am even driven to weep. Perhaps it was the salt water coalescing in my eyes, or a manifestation of my failing sight. But three nights ago, as I felt slumber coming on, something most peculiar occurred. The fire was slowly dying, its light retreating to the interior of the wood, and I sat content in my warm and comfortable chair. I had been fighting off drowsiness with an ever-weakening resolve, hoping to finish a particular chapter written in 1942. Had I been a younger man, perhaps I would have stayed awake, listening to the howl of the frigid wind. But as, as it happened, my head began to nod, my chin to rest on my shrunken chest, and my eyes to close. It was then, when I was most susceptible, that it happened. As I tried to remain awake a moment longer, the letters on the page seemed to move shifting ever so slightly. I dazedly blinked and came back to myself, but the odd moment had passed, and there being nothing remarkable to see, my eyes quickly lost their focus. I proceeded to fall into a deep, uninterrupted sleep. This sequence of events occurred on the night following as well, in precisely the same manner, under entirely similar circumstances.
the fire had expired, the room had grown dim, and the grieving furies wailed like tormented souls outside my little cabin. But what my eyes beheld this time, as I retained that final bit of self-awareness, made me jerk awkwardly to life. The ink had blurred and moved as surely as I breathed. And, most unholy of all, a word had appeared. I stared at the faded script on the page, but like Quicksilver, the message was gone. I was left with only an impression of what had been, a fleeting impartation of something horrid and unspeakable. The diary invited further investigation, but I could not bring myself to read it, to read what I knew to be the simple recollections of a young man. I shivered convulsively, and, suddenly aware of my age and solitude, I sought the refuge of my bed. When I awoke this morning, all memory of that uncanny experience had vanished from my mind. The day was bright and sparkling with possibilities, and although I first drifted about absent-mindedly, as if there were something important that required my attention, I quickly shed my listlessness in favor of a stroll through the woods and some late afternoon hours spent collecting fuel for the fire. I returned to the cottage tired but contented, and recalled with a smile those days I had, I had exhausted myself in the service of my country, marching back and forth along the stark, frozen perimeter of our camp. A hot meal of beef stew and a touch of sherry to rekindle my heart, and I was ready to recline by the hearth. My belly was full and my spirits were high. But as I settled into the old rocker with my diary in hand, a strange sense of unease seized upon me. It was slow to comprehend, building ever so gradually, but it palpably existed nonetheless. The twilight and the glow of the fire reminded me of something, something from the previous night that I should have recalled, but could not like a half-forgotten dream. It was a word. A word. I must have slipped into an uneasy sleep then, for when I opened my eyes some time later, the fire had died. Outside, the pale face of the moon shone just over the blackened tips of the trees, and it cast strange shadows on the floor. Perhaps I was still in a dreamlike daze, but looking at those otherworldly designs, I felt a peculiar chill grip me, as if something most foul had found deliverance from the grave and touched me with its cold and lifeless hand. I rose, gripping my diary to my chest, and hastened toward my bed, where I thought I might find peace. I moved stiffly, without much grace, my thin legs weak and unsteady. Coming to rest upon the mattress, I laid my diary down on the night table and slipped beneath the covers. I shut my eyes and for some time sought the intoxicating nectar of sleep. It remained elusive. The moon rose higher, and my unease grew. I felt that the letters in my diary had tried to tell me something. I knew it was a warning, a premonition of the future. Of that, I was certain but the meaning remained unclear. I sat up, propped against the pillows, a weak, frightened old man staring into the gloom. 
My body lay before me, spent and emaciated, covered by blankets as if by a death shroud, repulsing me, reminding me of them. Confused, I turned away. I tried to avert my gaze, but my eyes fixed on the blanched flooring of the room as I listened more closely to the howls beyond the walls. The howls like tormented souls. And I understood. The moonlight shining garishly through the twisted limbs of the denuded forest slid slowly across the old planking of the floor. And in the swirling grain of the faded pine, I saw their faces, twisted and tortured, screaming at me like inhuman beasts, their mouths tearing apart, eyes bursting with fear. They were the faces of the past, the faces of the camp, and I had seen them all. Before I fell asleep, I ventured one last look at my diary, at the cursed black insignia emblazoned on its cover, and I knew the word I had read. I closed my eyes. The word was hell. So that's for you, Francis Collins. Hope you enjoyed it. That's for you, soldiers who go out and commit war crimes. That's for you, former Waffen SS trooper. May you ask for forgiveness for your soul. That's for you, Anthony Fauci. Donald Trump, EcoHealth Alliance, Paul Zazak. We'll return with more Liberty Conspiracy on Free Talk Live. Thanks so much for listening. Free Talk Live. It's going to be very interesting to see uh, what happens in this next election, but I have... I have no vested interest in this whatsoever. I do want to welcome, however, a man who has been watching this uh, longer than I have and has been one of my big heroes for a long time. He's our guest now. He is James Bovard coming to us from just outside the the swamp of Washington, D.C. on the David Knight Show. James, welcome to the program. I see the, uh, the symbol for you. I think we've got audio. And welcome and congratulations on your new book, Last Rights, James Bovard. Uh, thanks very much. Thanks for having me on, having me back on, and uh, thanks for uh, plugging the book. And uh, yeah, I was I was trying to figure out whether or not to use a video today, and uh, I thought it might overwhelm viewers to have two photogenic guys on the screen. <laughs> well, thank you, thank you, James. I I don't have the beard. I couldn't grow the beard the way you do. But yes, I know we would probably count your over- blessings. Count your <laughs> blessings on the beard. Isn't that what isn't that what the uh, the Ministry of Truth is all about? Nina Jankovic was there to stop us handsome guys from getting too much airtime, right? I don't know entirely what she was uh, supposed to do, but she was. I mean, she was great for comic relief. I mean, it's it's always good to have a uh, to have a, a woman whose um, whose videos included who um, asking um, who exactly can I. Uh, fill the blank to become rich and powerful. Uh, yes. And it's, um, I wouldn't use that verb because you've got a family-friendly show, but it was great to see online. It's like, you know, I guess 
you know, the Biden White House, when they were vetting her for that appointment, forgot to ask one important question. Does she sing? (laughs) Maybe they'll have to put that on the application form from now on, right? Well, the nice thing is once they booted her, everybody thought the Ministry of Truth was done, but it wasn't. They brought in uh, Michael Chertoff. Well, yeah, he was there. Yeah, I mean, it's just it's amazing that he would have any credibility oh. uh, in Washington after the things he's done and the lobbying, oh. lobbying he's done. Uh, but uh, no, I mean, you heard all these. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, no, I heard Jim that he wants people to pass through an airport scanner before they can get online to speak. I think that's his new gimmick, just to sell <laughs> more scanners. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, you got to find some use for those damn airport scanners. <laughs> Hell, haven't done any good as far as catching weapons and bombs. Uh, so, I mean, I've you know, I've had I've had some uh, memorable experiences with those scanners and with the TSA, and oh, I've yeah. tried I've tried to settle accounts. Hey, I tell you, James Bovard is our guest, folks. Go to jimbovard.com and uh, follow him at Jim Bovard on Twitter. And the new book is great. And I, I, I know that you wrote about your recent experiences with the TSA. It hasn't changed. It's not any more secure. We know that every few years they would have their studies on how many bomb-like materials would go through. And even ABC News would do their own studies. It never changed despite the increasing budget, despite the daily, minute-by-minute, person-by-person encro- encroachments into the Fourth Amendment, the Fifth Amendment, the Sixth Amendment, the Eighth Amendment, so many things. And and that lets us look at last rights. And I, I, I want to bring this up to all the audience, everybody. Last rights, the latest from James Bovard. It has a picture of the Capitol building with the razor wire and the fence just in the foreground. And, of course, on the back, I showed this at the start of the show, everybody, the armed goons protecting our liberties. Isn't that? Oh, I'm sorry. They're protecting the politicians from we people they tell us are free. James, you've got a lot in this book. Um, first of all, I know you've been working on this for a long time. How long ago did you start to think, okay, I'm, I'm going to get this book out? Because this is a crucial time to have this book released. Uh, shortly before COVID, actually. I was uh, trying to tie a lot of uh, things together that I've been writing about for uh, years. I mean, this is, this is a flashback to uh, 1993, 94. When Lost Rights came out, the, the the book that preceded this, right, uh, and it's and it was a roundup of a lot of the federal, state, and local atrocities and abuses back then. Oh, and folks said I was much too cynical, uh, and it's kind of like you know I don't think so. But it's sad to look back in the 1990s, almost as like if it was a golden era for freedom. Oh, isn't that, it's bizarre, isn't it? I mean, it's like, it's like going, it's going, it's like going from one abusive relationship into a worse relationship. And, you know, and then you say to yourself, gee, I, I had it better off when I was, you know, when I was getting beat up this way, it's ridiculous. It's like going, it's It's like drowning in water versus drowning in quicksand. It gets worse. It just gets worse. And, and, you know, they keep using these rationales where the government gets caught at something. You know, we see James Clapper testifying in front of Ron Wyden and Wyden already knows that they're surveilling people because they've got the Snowden information. It just hasn't gone public yet. And all of a sudden, boom, what happens? He asked him, is the NSA uh, collecting data on people? Uh, no. And then Wyden gives, Wyden gives him a chance to get out of possibly perjuring himself, which he just did. And 
He says, uh, no. And he said, well, not uh, knowingly. I'm like, no, you were doing yeah, it knowingly. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. what the that's what FICE is about. That's what the whole FISA thing is about. And it's not just Section 702. It's the very concept of it's not in the Constitution. It's strictly prohibited. And the prohibition doesn't mean that it only applies to the government invading Americans' rights. It's anybody's rights. They don't have the ability to scan somebody in Sweden, just like they don't have the ability to scan somebody in New Hampshire. They just don't have the power. It's amazing to me. James, you have so many things here. Can I run through a sure. little bit? Thank you so much. Pardon the spectacles here. I just wanted to make sure I looked like Char Charlie Robinson, the great Charlie Robinson, a great podcaster. And, and uh, you, so in the book, everybody just released from the Libertarian Institute, and I hope you'll check it out at the Libertarian Institute website. Um, as you mentioned here, you have in the introduction, tyranny comes to Main Street. Americans today have the freedom to be freedom in quotes. And this is very, this is very, very important to me, James. Uh, and, and I'm so glad that having, you know, as a teenager, I picked up one of your books, you know, I'm what, like 10 years behind you or something like that. And I'm like, I like this guy. And now I know you. And I'm like, I like this guy. And you Thanks. always, you, yeah, you keep getting the bat on the leather. You keep hitting it, man. It's great. The bat on the leather. Okay, that's a New Hampshire phrase. Yeah, absolutely. It's my dad. He used to play for the Red Sox, uh, their farm team. Oh, Americans, really? That's great. Yeah, yeah. They used to. They were called the Hooligan Squad. It was before World War II, and uh, he never. Wow. Yeah, yeah. It was interesting. Americans today, you say, have the quote freedom end quote to be fleeced, groped, wiretapped injected, censored, ticketed, disarmed, beaten, vilified, detained, and maybe shot by government agents. Politicians are hell-bent on protecting citizens against everything except Uncle Sam. Ah, it's that wonderful social contract, isn't it? As America, is America becoming a cage-keeper democracy? where voters merely ratify the latest demolition of their rights and liberties. And you cover in this book, it's not, it's not just a wide array. It's as if you're using a logical syllogism from point A down to point 15. What letter is that? You know, M, something like that. You talk about seizure fever, the war on gun owners, License to kill, the COVID crackdown catastrophe, schools gone wild, 10,000 czars, subsidies and subjugation, dominate and yeah, be careful what you wish for states and corporations, dominate, intimidate, control, taxation and tyranny, no place to hide, see no evil democracy, mindless ministry of truth. Ah, the singing, singing spirit, uh, spirit of, of uh, Nanny Jankowitz. American Gestapo run amok and last chance for liberty, concluding things with tons of end notes. Uh, so, James, you put this together. It's a lot of work. In addition to the, the articles you write, uh, I don't know how many articles you write every week. Uh, do, you, do you have a certain set number that you put out every week, James? No, uh, I, I'm, you know, with the book being done, I'm aspiring to about to have three or four out per week. But uh, I have a question uh, for you on the book. Is that a paperback or a hardback version? 
This is the hardcover. Okay, okay, because I haven't seen it. I was trying to find it. I mean, Amazon was supposed to have it, and they, you know, I don't know. But uh, so where did you order that from? Uh, I can't remember if I got this through the Libertarian Institute website or I went to Amazon uh, just so I could get it shipped over more quickly. Great, yeah. great. Well, it, it you know it looks good on this. I I was trying to get some hardbacks, and I've got paperbacks, but I will uh, I will track those down. Oh, this is absolutely fantastic, James. I got a few of the items I'd like to discuss with you, and I've I've bookmarked each one. Far away. Okay, we've got Chapter Three: The War on Gun Owners. Of course, I was talking about uh, the way that uh, so-called red flag laws are contrary to half the Bill of Rights. Punishment without any trial, uh, Second Amendment, Third Amendment, uh, Fourth Amendment, Fifth Amendment, Sixth Amendment. Um, then we've got License to Kill. And this is really something else. It goes back to the 90s. A lot of different things with the Justice Department and how so-called reform was never actually instituted. And as they often do, the reforms that they claim actually give them permission to do even worse things to us. Then we're talking about the American Gestapo run amok. That is the FBI. So if you'd like to pick any one of those for our audience, and if anyone has any questions for James Bovard, put it in the Rockfin or Rumble chat. And if you're watching on David Knight's Twitter feed, uh, I can also check those in a little while, but we'll go with Rockfin and Rumble chat. James, is there any one of those you'd like to hit first? Uh, you know, I don't have any specific preference The uh, on the FBI. The American Gestapo, that was a phrase from President Truman right? in his diary, I think in late 1945, maybe 46. He said he was worried that the FBI was becoming uh, a, a Gestapo and that America did not need that. That was just after the defeat of Nazi Germany. And yeah, so, I see uh, here. We want no Gestapo or secret police. FBI is trending in that direction. 1945, you wrote. Yep. Yep, and it's uh, so he was aware of the the uh, damage, the uh, danger, and other politicians have had some very eloquent statements on that over the subsequent decades. But the FBI, you know, still has vast unchecked power. The FBI tried to throw the 2016 presidential election to Hillary Clinton. The FBI had a huge role in helping uh, Joe Biden win the 2020 election, and I don't know, uh, you know, there hasn't been any effective effort that I know of to put a leash on the FBI for the 2020, 2024 presidential election. So, you know, yeah. um, I don't see how, uh, I don't see how democracy survives this. Well, you know, it's amazing because you can roll back so fluidly in conversation to some of those things. And every one of those things you mentioned, the 2016, right? So one of the things on which I was reporting in MRC TV, James, was the so-called DNC hack, right? We know that the DNC didn't give the computer to the FBI initially. They gave it to CrowdStrike, CrowdStrike run by this guy, Aparamov or something like that, a member of the Atlantic Council. They came out with their report, which is absolutely ridiculous. Bill Binney has mentioned that there's no way that the data could have been transferred as quickly as it was transferred if it was done through phone lines. It had to have been done on site with data sticks, flash drives, and then uh, this guy, Aparovamich or whatever, um, comes out and says, oh, it was the Russians. And that entire Russian, uh, Russians uh, interference, Russian thing carried through 
as the Portman Murphy bill was circulating in 2016 and got passed in that last NDAA that Obama signed in December of 2016, which created the Portman Murphy Countering Foreign Propaganda Act, which helped give a lot of this money to places like NewsGuard and um, um, Election Guard and all these different agencies that we found were actually being funded by the feds. Simultaneous to that, we see the feds now hiding information about like the Hunter Biden laptop and literally reaching out to the New York Times to say, don't talk about this thing that we know the hard drive had the um, the chain of possession already set up. They knew it was authentic, but they didn't want people to know about this. And that is that's one of the softer things, but it had incredible implications. And I was amazed that many people were unaware of the FBI's role in that. Yeah, I mean, that's something the New York Post did great work on, and they have dogged that issue very effectively. Uh, it's it's frustrating to see how much BS the government get, still gets away with and uh, talking to folks who are moderates, liberals, Democrats, or even undecided. Uh, their, their, their knowledge base on these scandals is very low, uh, and it's, uh, it's sort of like talking to conservatives about the torture scandals, like, what? That never happened. Right, um, right. So uh, it's just, you know, and this is part of how the how the outrages uh, snowball and, uh, you know, they uh, turn into precedents and there's almost no way to put a leash on them. It's amazing. Uh, you know, we know that uh, prior to, say, this contemporary era we might be looking at in 2016, there were all sorts of problems with the FBI, as we know, you know, whether it was uh, the Black Panthers, Martin Luther King Jr., uh, and so many of the different things that were instituted uh, with the creation of the FBI right on through. It's always been very, very sketchy. Uh, it's always been something where the FBI on the surface carried this sort of mantle of pride. And, oh, this is and a lot of the guys would go into the FBI thinking I'm going to do the right thing. But there have always been very dark factions to the FBI and a lot of questions constitutionally about, well, is it really excusable to create a, a police agency for crimes that might happen across borders? Or is it really just the maximum that the feds would do would be to facilitate extradition between states. And that's sort of the fundamental question about the FBI. But there are other things that have happened recently. We've seen the FBI um, and, of course, the Department of Education being implicated at the Justice Department as well in possibly investigating concerned parents who go to school board meetings and investigating Catholics who are traditional and Catholic mass masses. Uh, would you like to amplify on some of the other things that you discovered as you wanted to put this together or throughout your life, some of the things that stand out for you about the FBI and just how inflammatory it has become or how bad it was in the past? Yeah, uh, that's a very good question. Uh, the, uh, it's interesting, going back to the, um, the FBI and the Catholics, it came out earlier this year that the, F uh, that the FBI in Richmond and other places had a secret campaign to infiltrate church services to, quote, identify the bad Catholics. And, you know, I don't, I'm not comfortable at all with the FBI setting themselves up to be secret judges of who is and who is not a good Christian or a good Catholic. Yeah. Uh, you know, this is, you talk about a Pandora's box. And, and this is something, it wasn't just one nitwit FBI agent who did this. 
this is something which got approved at multiple levels. But one of the things that sticks in my mind most vividly on the FBI was Ruby Ridge. You had right. the FBI send their snipers out there. You had the FBI, uh, the, you know, the FBI snipers were given an order to shoot to kill, basically shoot on sight for the adults that were being besieged yeah. by federal agents. And then the uh, FBI sniper guns down Vicki Weaver. She's holding her uh, baby in the cabin door. And that agent, uh, Lon, Lon Horiuchi, uh never was uh, never received any sort of uh, uh, any sort of uh, um, punishment. In fact, he he got advanced as Lon Har- Horiuchi after killing, right? Yep. And uh, so that was something I wrote about, and it was uh, fascinating to see the the pushback. Uh, FBI Director Lewis Free condemned me in public for uh, for uh, slandering FBI agents and the FBI itself, but. But I later got hold of a 500-page confidential Justice Department report on, on, on their analysis of Ruby Ridge. And the Justice Department had many of the same condemnations of the FBI that I had as far as their, their conduct and their cover-up of Ruby Ridge. But you just said it publicly. Uh, I said it publicly, and uh, the FBI chief thought that he could squash my reputation like a bug. Well, I'm still you know, here. You are, you are James Bovard. And by the way, as we talk about last rights, I want to mention, I remember at that time, um, of Ruby Ridge, G Gordon Liddy was doing his radio show. Oh, he was, he was great. Yeah. And he was excellent on that Ruby Ridge issue. And he would mention what you were talking about. I remember him talking about your work on his show and uh, I got to meet him a number of years ago and, um, he was very, very nice to me. And, uh, you know, I obviously going to prison after the Nixon uh, Nixon issues and things like that. But uh, he really did a splendid job talking about Lon Haruyuchi, Ruby Ridge and Randy Waver and his family. And I really appreciate the fact that you still you stood up for those people. You know, David Knight was down there with uh, with the um, uh, down at uh, Bundy Ranch when the Bureau of Land Management was trying to wipe out the Bundy Ranch and take that over. They were sabotaging the water pipes and so on. David was there at the standoff uh, wow. as the snipers had their guns trained on them. He was right yeah. there. Yeah, and, there's, a, there's a section in the book on the Bundy Ranch case in the FBI. Just, so. just it's it's incredible, and I don't. I it's it 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 gets me choked up a little bit sometimes to think about just how far people have it. You know, you get these little these little bubble ups of people standing up for what is appropriate. They're standing up for their rights. These people at Bundy Ranch had a land agreement when Nevada was a territory. And as I've mentioned, there is no provision for the United States government to run land other than Washington, D.C., territories and military garrisons. And as you know, when, according to the Constitution, territories become states, they're supposed to enter with, as they say, all the rights and privileges of any other state. And there is no uh, mandate that they have to cede land to the government. And even if they had to cede land, even if they wanted to cede land to the federal government, they the federal government has no provision in the Constitution to manage that land. So all these areas, Grand Escalante, as I mentioned yesterday on David's show, or the uh, the Bears, the Bears Feet, or the Anwar, anything like that, all these areas where they've opened up national parks or uh, you know cl- closed off anthracite to help the Lippo Group for the for the Clinton administration, uh, any of those things, those are supposed to be up to the states. And since the Bundys had an agreement 
from that territory of Nevada before it became a state, they were grandfathered in. Their family had grazing rights and the feds were trying to wipe them out. And it's amazing to think that the pop media could portray people who were just trying to mind their own business, who were just sitting there, who got invaded by federal agents, the FBI, the BLM, with their their tax-funded guns. They can portray the, the Bundys as the, the flipped-out aggressors, as the wild gun-toters, and they were just defending their property. And yep. that sort of, uh, I, I love to correct the record on that sort of thing, especially for peaceful people like that, James. We'll be right back on Liberty Conspiracy on Free Talk Live with more of our conversation with James Bovard, author of the book Last Rights. We return with more of our conversation with author James Bovard, the man who brings us his new book, Last Rights, here on Liberty Conspiracy on Free Talk Live. Check out Liberty Conspiracy every Monday through Friday, starting at 6 p.m. Eastern Time on Rumble and Rockpin. And, of course, you can follow me, Gardner Goldsmith, on Twitter slash X at G-A-R-D Gard Goldsmith. This hour of Free Talk Live is brought to you by Dash Digital Cash. Dash is the cryptocurrency designed to be used for spending. In addition to being one of the world's first cryptocurrencies, Dash was the first crypto project to have a decentralized autonomous organization that to this day continues to improve and promote Dash. Every month, 10% of the mining rewards go into a treasury. Anyone with one Dash to spend can put forward a proposal to the Dash masternodes. The masternodes vet the proposals and decide which ones move forward and are funded by the Treasury. Nowadays, DAOs are plentiful, but Dash paved the way by doing it first nearly a decade ago. Dash is one of the oldest cryptocurrencies and is widely available on exchanges, including the decentralized Maya protocol and in multi-crypto wallets. It's easy to use and get Dash. Start by learning more at Dash.org. Thanks to Dash DAO for sending us 32 Dash per month to promote Dash on the air. Visit Dash.org to learn about Dash. Dash Dash.org. It's amazing to think that the pop media could portray people who were just trying to mind their own business, who were just sitting there, who got invaded by federal agents, the FBI, the BLM, with their their tax-funded guns. They can portray the the Bundys as the the flipped-out aggressors, as the wild gun-toters. And they were just defending their property. And yep. that sort of, uh, I, I love to correct the record on that sort of thing, especially for peaceful people like that, James. Yeah, and it was fascinating to see the um, the evolution of the federal court cases and the federal judges on that issue. Yeah. Because there was a, uh, I think, Judge Navarro, maybe, Gloria Navarro. Yeah. She, was, uh, she started out very much leaning in favor of the FBI and the feds, but by the time, at a certain point, there were, a, there were a number of very uh, late uh, revelations the feds made that blew their credibility to pieces. And, yeah. and she basically uh, threw the case out of court 
and gave the FBI a very thorough cussing. Yeah, the discovery process there on every one of those was so important. And of course, you know, I think, James, it harkens back to back to the days when they would try to have the kangaroo courts during the revolutionary era to take people away from their local juries. And they, you know, they tried them up in Nova Scotia. That was one of the things you wanted to have jury of your peers. People hear this information. Even judges sometimes will stand up and say, you know what? This is just wrong. Uh, And 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 yeah, good for Judge Navarro. I was I was really pleased about that. James, um, any other thoughts on the FBI? I'd love to talk to you a little bit about something tied to the FBI, the the war on drugs and things like civil asset forfeiture. uh, Um, Sure. Go for it. Okay, uh, well, let's let's talk a little bit about the so-called war on drugs, you know, starting up with Lyndon Johnson. But even before that, certain statutes, a lot of the old jazz musicians finding that they, you know, were running into problems with the law. Um, We've got an idea that somehow. The person accused with some crime against others just for possessing a substance, which is not a violent act of aggression against anyone, just the possession of a substance or the sale to a voluntary willing participant of a substance like drugs, or whatever it might be, um, that somehow first any state agency, agency of the state in its normative sense, should be involved in stopping that person from engaging in that peaceful activity. But on the constitutional level, the superstructure of this on a national and historical level for the United States, James Boulevard, we've got the so-called war on drugs. That has incentivized local police forces. And even the Obama administration threw down a smokescreen with Eric Holder in there. Uh, And you talk about some of this, some of Eric Holder's background on this. The so-called war on drugs, the seizure of people's property, and how it incentivizes the local police to engage in these types of raids because they can make tons of money. They get to keep people's stuff. Can you talk a little bit about the concept of civil asset forfeiture and how you approach it in last rights, James Bovard? You know, civil asset forfeiture means that the government come in and confiscate your property based on a mere allegation that it might have been misused at some time in the past. And the uh, there was, I think, a DEA agent who would say that the great thing about asset forfeiture is it's not up, not up to us to prove anything. And so so uh, so if, the, uh, if a government agent stops you walking down the street and he says, uh, let me take a look at your wallet. And so he pulls he pulls out your cash and then a drug dog comes up. and The drug dog alerts uh, to the drugs uh, supposedly on the uh, on your currency. Boom. That's sufficient for the government to seize your currency. However, the vast majority of American currency has micro traces of drugs and sufficient to uh, trigger a canine alert. But right. and judges judges have known that for 30 years. Judges have been condemning this uh, a canine dog currency seizure as a bunch of crap going back to probably even before Bill Clinton's presidency. Right. Uh, but, you know, it's still there, and it's, uh, it's almost like a Monty Python test of whether or not a woman is a witch if she weighs more than a duck. Uh, so <laughs> She's made of wood. That's it. That's it. Got to drown her. <laughs> Maybe she was eating crunchy frogs. I don't know. Yeah, but, it, yeah. That's something I've always avoided. 
Yes, yes. And James, uh, let's. I, I mentioned this before you came on. I've done this on my Liberty Conspiracy show, but I'd like to show this for the David Knight audience as I fill in for David Knight. Uh, James Bovard is our guest on the David Knight Show, everybody. And place your questions in Rockfin chat after we show this and get David's thoughts about the conflict, the seeming bipolar problem between the so-called war on drugs, unconstitutional, of course, and the so-called war on terror, which has seen such a, a destruction of so many of the rights that are supposed to be protected by the U.S. Bill of Rights. And James, I'd like to turn right now to this. There might be a little ad that pops up. This is from 20 years ago. It's Geraldo Rivera on the ground in Afghanistan as U.S. soldiers guarded the heroin poppy crop. Showing the fact that the drug government is here, it's going to... And is the opium trade. The Taliban is using it to intimidate the population. Joining us from Helmand Province is Geraldo Rivera. Good morning to you, uh, Geraldo. Tell us what you've seen during your days there in Afghanistan. Hi, Allison, Dave, and Clayton. Yes, in some ways, the Marines brilliantly executed invasion of Marja, this town in the middle of Helmand Province, was the easy part. The hard part now is governing this province, a province, as you suggest, that has become addicted to opium in many, many ways. That is the principal crop that is being grown here. Uh, The Taliban lend the farmers the money. They are indebted to the Taliban. They have to grow the opium. Now the Marines, in their success, are in a sense a victim of their success because now the population is, uh, you know, they have these opium fields and we are tolerating it. We are tolerating the cultivation of the opium because we know that if we were to destroy it now, the population would turn against the Marines and it would be a real security risk. Let me introduce Lieutenant Colonel Brian Christmas. He's the commanding officer of the 3rd Battalion, 6th Marines. Uh, really a, a wonderful group of uh, Marines here. Uh, I know that you care deeply about this, uh, this contradiction, the fact that uh, here you have one of the best fighting forces in the world ever mounted. Uh, and in a sense, uh, you're watching as uh, this opium is being grown. I know it, it grinds at your gut. Uh, how do you deal with it? What are you doing about it? Well, uh, frankly, this is part of the culture. So uh, while it might grind in my gut, it, it's what they do. So it's very interesting, James. I bring that up, of course, uh, knowing that they were unconstitutionally there. Ron Paul offered a declaration of war. He got three votes. Of course, he was not going to vote for it himself. And um, I thought that it was important to bring that up because we have this bipolar situation of the U.S. government telling us they have this so-called war on drugs, then invading a foreign nation, occupying it for two decades And as they're occupying it, seeing the opium coming out of there increase and the proportion of the world's trade going up to near 97 percent coming from Afghanistan. Now, James, uh, just a few weeks ago, I was reading about how the Taliban and again, I'm not in favor of one group destroying the crops of anybody. But Afghanistan is no longer number one on the uh, export of opium poppy products. It's now something like Myanmar or something like that. They've dropped because the Taliban did get in there. And rather than doing what the government told us they would do, which would be to take over the fields and run them themselves, they're destroying the fields. And uh, it is amazing to me because we got people who are accustomed to the United States being in Afghanistan, even some military members, I've spoken to them. And I've been at airports. I've seen them in their in their fatigues. And I say, oh, are you heading out somewhere? They're like, yeah, I'm going to Afghanistan. I'm going to Iraq. And I say, listen, if you don't want to answer this question, if it makes you feel uncomfortable, that's okay. I don't want to make you feel uncomfortable. 
But I know you swear an oath to the Constitution. Yes. You will answer to uh, constitutional orders. Yes. There is no declaration of war. The only way the president can send troops out constitutionally is if there's a declaration of war. How do you feel knowing that you swore an oath to the Constitution, but they're sending you out in a breach of the Constitution? And their answer always is, well, I do what they tell me. And I think that that is sad and, of course, very frightening. And I hope that, you know, I don't want to be too explicit on it, but I hope that people will remember this is the type of policy. What we see right here on the screen, this is the type of policy you get when people don't try to keep tabs on their own ethics and what is right and wrong and contradictory based on government policy. And what they were doing there, I wonder, James, if anybody could say, gee, you know, you are guarding those fields. Now we're going to come in and do civil asset forfeiture on the U.S. military now, because, of course, you're involved with a crime. We can just take your Jeeps. You think they would do that, James? Well, I think it might be difficult to collect. (laughs) If there is something, and I I don't know how long you can stay with us, James, but I do want to ask a couple questions uh, from Rockland. Excellent, excellent. Uh, so let's head over to Rockfin and Rumble chat and uh, and see what you have to say, everybody, here on the David Knight Show. And here are some of the uh, points that are brought up over at Rumble, uh, Rockfin. Uh, we're seeing, okay, uh, they're talking about Geraldo Rivera. Now, yeah, someone brought up the pandemic. Uh, the pandemic and the lockdowns. Love for you to be able to address some questions on that regarding civil liberties, James. And uh, Michael DeSalvio says, we should just grow it here in the United States. <laughs> Very good point. And Hal 9000 Watson, I'm sure you uh, understand the reference there, James. A little dig on uh, IBM says, oh, the American way. And uh, they also say no war, no war on pharma drugs. Those are subsidized and protected. Let's talk about the lockdowns for a second, James. Uh, you saw what was going on. And then we'll talk about the Capitol building, maybe January 6th, because you visited there and just seen the stark in your face police state appearance and practice there and how things have changed. Uh, do you have any thoughts about um, the United States uh, government, including various Uh, governors, most of them, uh, and legislatures cracking down on people's civil liberties, choosing uh, essential, non-essential businesses, uh, shutting things down with uh, vaccine passports, the border, you got to be jabbed, all these types of things. Um, There's there's a a solid chapter in the book on the uh, COVID uh, crackdown craziness. Um, You know, uh, I think one of the clearest lessons of the uh, uh, pandemic was it um, the, in the long run, people have more to fear from politicians than from a virus. Um, you had so many politicians who uh, gave themselves dictatorial power. There were some great Supreme Court dissents during the uh, early part of the pandemic. Uh, I believe it was Justice, Justice uh, Gorsuch who was who was uh, mocking the state of Nevada for putting very uh, very low limits for church attendance. But there was there was a much larger limit for going to the casinos, and he said right. it's really difficult to reconcile the First Amendment with the. Uh, um, he had a very good line afterwards. Trust me on that one. But there were lots of uh, lots of good court decisions. 
But the hysteria by the media, most of the media, not all of it, in favor of unlimited government power um, and and uh, to see how the media made saints out of people like Fauci, uh, in spite of all of his contradictions, in spite of his flip-flops, it, it was almost as if groveling to the government was the only way people could be saved. Absolutely. Absolutely right. And his his elitist El Senor uh, approach, uh, looking down his nose at people, you know, the way that in, in you know, I, I wish Rand Paul had gone farther. I, I hope he continues to do more, uh, not just questioning uh, the uh, gain of function, but questioning any of the United States government involvement in the jab research. And of course, they they called those countermeasures, claiming they could do that as a DOD type of preparatory thing against a potential attack by some foreign nation developing a virus. But they're the ones who developed develop the virus indirectly through EcoHealth Alliance, moving it from North Carolina over to Wuhan. Uh, so all of it is unconstitutional. And here's the quote on page 77, folks, from Neil Gorsuch. Uh, James writes in his new book, Last Rights, available at the Libertarian Institute, also on Amazon. James Bovard at Jim Bovard on Twitter. Politicians effectively promised to banish all COVID risk by obliterating individual liberty. But according to the Centers for Disease Control, most Americans still contracted COVID despite, quote, the greatest intrusions on civil liberties in the peacetime history of this country, end quote, as Neil Gorsuch declared in 2023. Those lockdowns destroyed millions of jobs, spurred hundreds of thousands of bankruptcies, and sparked far more suicides, alcoholism, and drug abuse. Jim, Everything from local schools and the teachers unions pushing for even more outside the school so-called education. Everything from parents speaking up about that sort of thing and the way that they were speaking up about wokeism being detected by the DOE. Then working with the National School Boards Association to try to concoct a narrative that the concerned parents were somehow potential domestic terror threats and then getting the FBI to investigate them, which was halted supposedly, but not really when they got discovered uh, to the lockdowns, the jab passports. And as I've mentioned, the use of HIPAA, the 1996 Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act, uh, supposedly uh, uh, to protect our privacy, but in between pages 75 and 95 of the PDF, people can see how the head of HHS can demand medical records from anybody who is in medical in a medical profession who accepts Medicare, Medicaid patients to things like uh, the the uh, people bringing in uh, uh, things on trucks from Canada. You've got to be jabbed uh, to all sorts of things. You can protest for BLM but you can't protest for your own rights to protest. Unbelievable, unbelievable encroachments, and they cannot be forgotten. These sorts of things have to be remembered, and they have to be fought. They, they, they have to be fought on a local, state, and federal level. And it just amazes me that so many people just allow these things to come out. And the lies, Fauci openly saying, well, yes, I lied about masks, and now I'm giving you a spurious reason is because I think they're so important to have masks when everybody knows the masks aren't important.
just absurd. What were some of the standout things as you went back on this? Because there's so much regarding the lockdowns and the lies from the federal government and the constitutional side of things and people's rights. Well, there's, yeah, I've got a section in the COVID chapter on how the Biden White House browbeat the FDA to force them to give full approval for the Pfizer vax for COVID because they had to have that before Biden imposed his mandate for um, all Americans working for large companies to get vaxxed. Uh, and to see the absolute contempt for anyone who did not roll over in command, shortly after Biden gave his speech in September 2021 on his vax mandates, Biden showed up on CNN and, and he said that the only reason that people weren't getting vaccinated because, because they want the freedom to kill you with their COVID virus. And this is, and these are, these are lines which have a lot, uh, uh, never really showed up in the media radar screen. People do recall that Biden promised that, that if you get the injection, then, then you won't get COVID. And that was a false statement even when he said it because the CDC knew there were a torrent of breakthrough cases, but the feds were covering them up. But then the cover-up collapsed. Absolutely. And we know that even during the during the uh, early testing, they then got rid of their um, their um, uh, control. Uh, control group. Yeah. They ended yeah. up giving them the, the injection. The whole yeah. thing was absurd. And again, you know, that goes towards my libertarian argument of don't put your faith in the central authority that then can be gamed for rent seekers to try to make sure their stuff gets through, especially when you get that revolving door. And as, as we, you know, we've discussed with your amazing book, the fair trade fraud, some of the biggest corporations have big incentives to make sure that their competition is knocked out and they get either government contracts or tariffs that will protect them or mandates to say you must use this product. And this is exactly what Biden did. It's amazing to me to think that people think that this sort of thing can be reformed without actually at least questioning the very moral and ethical premises on which these people base their arguments that you must be forced to pay for your own protection because it doesn't work. It never works that way. You're not going to get any satisfaction if the agency that is supposed to protect you can just take your money at any time. They're actually yeah. a protection racket, you know? Yep. And, 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 you know and, 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 and this is something which compounds with the censorship stuff because, okay, so you had the Biden folks come in and Biden was uh, hell-bent on persuading people that the COVID vaccines that were uh, uh, had only emergency use approval were panaceas. And so what the Biden White House did was crack down on Twitter and Facebook and force them to suppress people making jokes about COVID vaccines. Yeah. If you only made some kind of meme on uh, on Twitter, it's like, boom, you were suppressed because yes. it was like that, that the um, it was as if the COVID vaccines would only work if freedom of speech was destroyed. That's absolutely right, James. Absolutely right. And I'll, I'll point something out to you. Glenn Jacobs uh, mentioned this on Twitter, that since he is mayor of Knox County, of course, he's the former pro wrestler who played Kane. Bench press 520. What's that? That's important. I, I, was, I was talking to him once at a conference. He told me he's bench pressed 520. Wow. Are you kidding now. me? No, no. Holy moly. Serious stuff. So I'm not going to argue wow. with him. All right. Well, that's excellent. Um, he mentioned that Deborah Burks, 
join him and other people who are involved with government in Tennessee in a closed door meeting. And he mentioned that she told people that a lot of the information they had about, and I I don't want to be too explicit here because I'd rather read what he said. Um, but I'll, I'll see if I can find it here. Um, yeah, uh, Burks came to Knoxville in September 2020. Is that the one? Yes, that's it. Do you have it on yours, James? Yeah, I, I have it on mine. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Feel free uh, to this, read that. And Yeah, yeah this is quoting uh, Glenn Jacobs. Uh, he says that in a private meeting, Burks told us that bars and restaurants should be closed. She admitted that the, uh, the data didn't support it, but said it was necessary to, quote, send a message about the seriousness of the virus. That's marketing, not science, says Glenn Jacobs. Good job, Glenn. And he is a great, great guy. Um, In fact, I think we might have met either the year you were up here for the uh, uh, Libertarian uh, Porcupine Festival and Naomi Wolf was here, or it might have been the year after that. Um, But uh, yeah, uh, very good guy. And of course, he lives down in Tennessee now. And um, yeah, it's it's amazing to see the stuff that was going on. And and Glenn fought tooth and nail to try to prevent those sorts of mandates in his uh, in Knox County. And uh, good for him. Thanks for listening to Liberty Conspiracy on Free Talk Live. want to move to the free state and you're looking for some real estate well i know a guy who's really great it's the realtor mark warden now you can learn more about the awesome things happening here in new hampshire in our march toward liberty in our lifetime Our friends at Porcupine Real Estate are hosting a series of webinars to educate you on the expanded freedoms enjoyed by New Hampshire citizens. Reserve your seat today at move.freetalklive.com. Topics include gun freedom, medical freedom, and political freedom victories. They also have a couple on best practices for moving to the free state and finding housing. These webinars are super helpful and free to attend once you've registered at move.freetalklive.com. Visit their YouTube channel, Porcupine Real Estate, for videos from past presentations and sign up for upcoming webinars for free at move.freetalklive.com. Porcupineralestate.com